your host, Connie Aileen, and thank you for tuning in to the Fly Behind the Wall podcast, a podcast created to change the narrative about the realities of life in the United States prisons and jails. My goal is to return the systematic destruction of American lives back to the public conversation. Welcome to the Fly Behind the Wall, and thank you so much for joining me again today. All right, so today we will explore education behind the wall and sort of discuss the evolution of corrections through the years. I mean, it seems to me that there's no real secret sauce here. We either want them to be successful in reintegrating into society, or we don't. What do you think? There is a common misconception or misunderstanding that all of the learning while incarcerated is somehow limited to um, this school of crime. Though, you know, admittedly, um, prisons do have that element of being a school of crime, right? Inmates learn from the mistakes of each other. They talk to each other about what they did, how they got caught up. I mean, they reflect on what they did and what they could have done differently. I mean, other inmates weigh in where they're hearing these stories and, yo, this is what you could have done differently or, like, why'd you do that? Or that was dumb. I mean, they get sort of Monday morning quarterbacked by a whole tier full of inmates at times. I mean, you just never know. Um... But either way, you know, the belief that prisons are schools of crime has widespread support. Many believe that prisons are breeding grounds for crime. Um, Along those lines is the thought process that the inmate who has served a larger amount of time becoming more institutionalized in the process has had this tendency towards criminality strengthened and is therefore more likely to recidivate than other inmates who serve less time. So yeah, the more time you spend in prison, the more time you're exposed to other criminals, for lack of a better word, um, yeah, the more you learn about the criminal life and the criminal mind and criminal activities and ways to like, you know, circumvent any process. If I mean, that's a nice way of putting it, but you get, you get the drift, right? And the less time you spend around the criminal element, the less likely you'll be to you know, commit another crime soon as you get out. But the good news here is that there are formal educational opportunities available to inmates. And while, you know, from state to state that may vary, most systems do require at a minimum that inmates have a GED or a high school diploma. And for those inmates who don't have a GED, there are courses that they can take internally in order to earn their GED. I mean, in many institutions, there are sanctions if someone refuses to participate in the GED courses if, you know, it's their requirement. Um, At the end of the day, 
I think we have to be realistic about where these inmates really stand. You know, many of them are in our systems with really low reading levels. I mean, I've had many encounters sitting with inmates talking about this wonderful plan we were going to come up with to help them, you know, be stable when they get back into communities. And I'm giving them resource brochures and they're looking at me like, Miss Aline, what you want me to do with that? And I'm like, you know, take this to the unit. You can read it over, see what's out there, what's available. Let me know next time we meet what you want. And they're like, Miss Aline, I can't read that. Can you read it to me? I mean, that was the first time it happened. It was a very sobering experience to know that I'm sitting with this grown person who can't read. And that was just like a reality check for me. Um, And that's not something that was infrequent. That happened actually more frequently than not. And so I always wonder like, well, how do they get, get by? How do they get through like the different legal situations? They got to go to court. They got to, you know, write grievances. They got to, you know, advocate for themselves internally. If they want to get into some kind of program, they want to get into assignments or a work assignment. You usually have to be able to write and ask for these things. You got to write and request things. I mean, many of the documents that you get while you're incarcerated are documents that are sort of templated documents and you need to be able to read them. I mean, but they usually find someone who, whether it's a old celly, it's someone who lived in the neighborhood, maybe it's a relative, but someone that they trust for the most part who would read the stuff for them and like write things for them. I mean, they figure out how to survive, like no matter what, like literally they figure out how to get by, how to get their needs met. But so here's the facts. Most American prisoners have not completed high school, about 70% of them, right? This is an essential step to pursue higher education. Um, It's not enough these days to just have a high school diploma, though that is changing, right? The winds of change are coming in. However, right now at this point, our society has decided that in order to hold certain positions or to even be considered, you need to have at least a high school diploma, an associate's degree at different levels, a bachelor's, a master's, a doctorate, etc., Any other enhancement that you can have that's going to set you apart from the rest of the candidates, anything that's going to give you that competitive advantage, like you need to have it. Uh, There are inmates with this sort of innate ambition, right, and skill, but they are few and far between. You know, these days we have people like David Karp and Richard Branson, Aretha Franklin, Mike Hudak, Quentin Tarantino, George Foreman, those are folks who had dropped out of high school and managed to be extremely successful. You know, unfortunately, that is not necessarily the story of the 2.2 million people incarcerated in the United States prisons and jails. Um, There is a criteria and rules surrounding education. Like I said, um, they got to get the GED. Um, I mean, yes, there are other programs that help to build practical skills as well as like, so um, if you're non-speaking, non-English speaking, you know, inmates, 
must take English as a second language, right? Um, work assignments, on grounds, those are things that kind of help them prepare for work in sort of the quote unquote free world. You know, they have access to parenting classes. Um, I mean, so there are some places where there's sort of these post-secondary educational classes or like occupational classes where they can get like a skill, right? Um, so there's also some traditional college course funding for, see, like, I really don't want to talk about college too much because it's a, it's a, that's a very sticky situation, but there are opportunities for inmates to have access to different levels of educational opportunities. I mean, they also are taught like healthy lifestyles and habits and recreation and wellness activities. I mean, things that really encourage them to be positive. Um, they have access to the library and legal materials that help them and help each other to conduct sort of the legal research they need. I mean, we talk about the jailhouse lawyer, but I mean, that person is a really important person, especially if their research could yield someone getting out earlier, someone's appeal getting accepted. I mean, in this place where there is very little... Um, Dignity. There's very little for them to be proud of. Like to have that stamp of approval that you were smart enough to do this thing for someone, even if you couldn't do it for yourself. Like they get a lot of credibility inside for things like that. But here's the thing, right? So I hesitated about education, but you know, we may as well go there right now. People in the free world, us, you know, me, you, like many of us carry the burden of student loan debt, right? Quite honestly, you know, I read this article the other day in Forbes magazine about this $1.5 trillion student loan debt crisis. It's the second highest consumer debt category behind only mortgage debt and higher than both credit cards and auto loans. I mean, 44.2 million borrowers right now are carrying $1.5 trillion in student loan debt. So um, why should inmates have access to free educational opportunities when, you know, I ain't commit no crime and I'm carrying student loan debt, right? Because it's easy to, to put yourself in that place and think about yourself and not think about how the odds might have been stacked up against this particular person and how they ended up in that situation. Um, but education is our primary hope for rehabilitating prisoners. When you know better, you do better. If all they know is a life of crime, how to hustle, how to survive, and they've not been exposed to anything more, are we really expecting them to change? I mean, so there's tons of research available evidencing that prison education is cost-effective in reducing recidivism. I mean, P 
people released from prison with knowledge and skills have a far better chance of becoming productive members of their communities than those that don't. I mean, it improves their employment outcomes. This is value in providing education to inmates. I mean, so if reducing recidivism rates is the goal, education helps do that. If a successful transition back into the community is the goal, education helps them do that. So there are a few privately funded programs who have provided college courses to inmates in prisons across the nation, and they've been successful. Let's take BARD, an elite private college in New York State offering liberal arts courses to inmates convicted of violent crimes at a maximum security prison. Okay, so here's a significance here. Those guys in maximum security prisons, people don't want nothing to do with them, right? Those are the guys who have committed violent crimes, and those are the ones that are easily thrown to the wayside, right? And they usually don't get access to much. But here's the train of thought. Yes, we admit education is the pathway to a better life. However... Prisoners are still people who have behaved in a way that society has deemed as unacceptable. And so they are sent to prison to be punished. Congress felt that education and punishment should just never overlap. So federal funding for prison education was cut because of quote unquote moral conflicts. Okay. So whatever happened to like the ideas of enlightenment or like that age of reason where we were abolishing, abolishing torture and we were going to ensure that, you know, the punishment fit the crime. So let's stroll through our evolution of uh, corrections a bit. You know, we went from vigilante justice that was based on retribution and eye for an eye to like government justice, where a crime committed against one citizen was considered to be a wrong committed against all society, right? We went from physical punishment, so no no more corporal punishment, no more amputation, no more beating, no more shackling, no more dunking. But have we? Uh, Aren't we still beating and shackling? Um, Right. Um, So we supposedly has shifted from that to like more of a psychological punishment, right? We went to you being sentenced to transportation, right? Like, so you got deported or like incapacitation where like you had no access and you couldn't commit another crime or you had hard labor where you had manual labor all day, every day. That was your sentence. Then there was penal servitude where you either were sentenced to the military or to plantations and you had no access to outside world. I mean, incarceration is just the same, isn't it right now? Like 
you have no access to the outside world. And now don't get me wrong, you know, there have been some advancements, right? With technology, you know, some inmates have access to tablets and, you know, changes in like the phone system where they can actually reach out and talk to people more without paying an arm and a leg for a phone call. So yes, there has been some advancements, but it's still very limited, right? And then capital punishment was supposedly gone, right? That's that's the death penalty, public execution. Mm, there's still some states where we got the death penalty, right? All right, I just I just want us to be mindful of things that are supposedly in the past, but we still see them lingering in our current state of corrections. So fast forward and we have the advent of the House of Corrections, right? Where that's pretty much where inmates were confined. And when it first started, there, there weren't all these rules and regulations of how you housed people, where they were housed, men, women, children. Like it was just sort of a hodgepodge. You were incarcerated, you were, you were confined, and this was just it. Um, now there's all these standards in place standards of confinement, standards of care, standards of everything under the sun that inmates pretty much have rights while incarcerated. So let's go back to the age of reason for a second. The main element was this idea of changing the individual and and there was, <coughs> excuse me, the reform movement, which was this idea of individual freedom and the concept that people could change society for the better by using reason. And I mean, I think that might be a very idealistic approach given the level of compromise a lot of inmates are at, whether it be mental compromise, you know, whether it be substance abuse have compromised their ability to reason. So like it's, I want to acknowledge that not everyone has the same ability to reason, right? So not saying this is the best approach. I'm just saying it seems like they were onto something at that time. Um, and then you had like this uh, New York superintendent, Zebulon Brockway, who believed that rehabilitation could be achieved through education, Right, so here's like another phase of where corrections has kind of come and gone. So suffice it to say, there have been many iterations of prison reform along the way. And while education and rehabilitative approaches have been explored, we seem to always come back to this use of strict discipline. I mean, so you had the rehabilitation model of corrections that began in the 30s. But it didn't work for all inmates. But is anything going to work for all inmates? Like, that's kind of where my mind is at right now. Um, you have the community corrections that that approach in the 60s where um, rehabilitation needed to be done in the community, not in prisons. Um, I could see how that could work, right? Because, like, if you are taken, if you're put in the environment in which you are going to live and you are taught how to live in the actual environment, that's much better than teaching you how to live in an environment that 
in no way reflects real life, right? Because that one environment of or the controlled environment of a prison is not how real life is. Um, but then in the 80s, we shifted to this justice model, right, where offenders need to be kept off the streets and put behind bars so they cannot commit more crimes. And so we see what that led us to, right? We've got prison overcrowding. We've got all these legal cases being waged against corrections for a slew of reasons, right? I won't even go into that. Whether they're valid or invalid, we have 2.2 million Americans currently incarcerated in United States prisons and jails, right? So we cannot ignore the fact that education allows ex-offenders to not become a burden on the state. They can supply their own needs. I mean, so the inner stability and wholeness associated with self-sufficiency is invaluable. When we feel secure and content with ourselves, we feel worthy. That is a completely opposite feeling that you have when you're incarcerated. Education empowers. I mean, for the first time, if given the opportunity, many can determine their own course of life and make their own choices. However, every week, more than 10,000 prisoners are released from America's state and federal prisons. That equates to more than 650,000 ex-prisoners annually reintegrating into society, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. However, our recidivism rates are extremely high, with approximately two-thirds of ex-prisoners being rearrested within three years of release according to the Recidivism Center. It's an estimated nine million offenders returning to prison annually. Oh my God. It's clear that there is not enough support to help help ex-offenders to stay out of our correctional system. I need to just let that rest a little bit, right? Um, The criminal justice system needs more resources to improve reintegration efforts and help ex-offenders find adequate jobs and housing so they're less likely to re-offend. Helping ex-offenders successfully reintegrate into society will not only reduce recidivism rates, but but in many cases will help break the intergenerational cycle of criminality. No matter what David and Goliath situation you find yourself in, remember the words of Rosa Parks. You must never be fearful about what you're doing when it is right. 
I hope that I've given you enough to continue a healthy conversation about our incarcerated citizens. Thank you so much for listening as I continue to make my slice of the world a little better. You have just listened to The Fly Behind the Wall, now available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, and other listening platforms. Be sure to subscribe, share, and write a review. Join me next time, Behind the Wall.